This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Simon Partner, professor in the Department of History at Duke University. Dr. Partner is the author most recently of The Merchant's Tale, Yokohama and the Transformation of Japan, published by Columbia University Press in 2017. Dr. Partner, thank you for talking with me today. I'm delighted to. You recently published this book, The Merchant's Tale, Yokohama and the Transformation of Japan. Can you tell us about this book? Tell us about Shinohara Chueimon, the protagonist, and how does he find himself in Yokohama? And then how does Yokohama transform Japan? Okay, so I discovered this guy, Shinohara Chueimon, in the Yokohama archives. I was looking, actually, I really wanted to write about Yokohama. I have in the past written a good deal about village life, but I really was interested in this treaty port. turns out that there are very few records surviving of that sort of give any indications about daily life in Yokohama during this transitional period, the 1860s, prior to, to the Meiji Restoration. And his is one of the few surviving collections of materials. The actual materials are a pretty large archive that's stored in the Yamanashi Prefectural Museum. So this is where he came from, you know, then Koshu province, now Yamanashi Prefecture. And Shinohara Chuemon was a wealthy villager, relatively wealthy, and by no means super affluent. But, uh, you know, within his own rural society, he was definitely from the privileged Gono group who, for reasons that I uh, have been, you know, really tried to figure out throughout the writing this book, that I don't think I ever really fully understood, though, made, a, made the decision to leave his village when he was 50 years old, left behind some children, a flourishing agricultural enterprise, pretty much left it all behind and moved to Yokohama right when it opened in 1859. And he was one of the first Japanese, you know, in the, first, the group of the earliest Japanese merchants to set up shop in Yokohama. His original idea was that he would essentially be a kind of agent for the agricultural produce of his home province, Koshu. Uh, and his shop, in fact, was called the Koshuya, or the House of Koshu. Things kind of worked out a little differently for him o- over time. He stayed in Yokohama throughout the 1860s, he experienced the Meiji Restoration in Yokohama, finally returned to his home village in the mid-1870s and spent the rest of his life back home and died in his home village. So in a way, the book turned out to be a kind of a double biography. So, you know, on one hand, it's it's about this privileged villager, his experiences trying to get rich in Yokohama. And at the same time, it's really a story about the town of Yokohama itself and its growth from a very, very small and very unusual place to one of the most economically dynamic centers uh, of Japan by the end of the 1860s. And yes, you said transformation. And indeed, I think this was the central concern that I had throughout the research and writing of this book. It was very clear to me that, that there was something very special going on in Yokohama that was having transformative effects for people uh, in the back in the countryside, but also throughout Japanese society. And the book is a kind of an attempt, I guess, to try and understand some of the mechanisms of that transformation and what Yokohama's role as an urban space might have been in that. 
And so you mentioned that you're trying to uncover some of the everyday life for Japanese people in Yokohama. And we, we think so often of Yokohama as a settlement port and a treaty port where there are lots of Western travelers and Western visitors. But what was it like for those Japanese residents in a place like Yokohama? You could say the people who were on the front lines of Westernization in Japan in the 1860s. Right, yeah, they really were. Like, uh, for example, Chuemon himself, well, as I mentioned, he was 50 years old. But he took with him two of his children, a, a son who was 17 at the time, and another son who was, I think, only six or seven years old when they moved to Yokohama. So those children, for example, really spent their formative years in this international space of Yokohama. And I, I really see them as being you know, the first generation of a totally new cultural orientation in Japan that was very much facing outwards towards the world. You know, a lot of my work was on Chuemon himself, but I also foraged as broadly as I could in the in the archives about Yokohama. And I was very struck by the enormous diversity of people coming in and out of Yokohama. It was an incredibly dynamic place almost from the get-go. Uh, you know, to give you one example, I think in 1860 or 1861, Chuemon invited his family, the ones who had stayed behind in his home village, to come visit. Uh, including some elderly uncles and aunts. And they came and he writes about how the streets were so crowded that, um, you know, they had wanted to go and look at the houses of the foreigners, but the place was so packed with other tourists and visitors and merchants and people from all different backgrounds just sort of crowding the streets is how I envision it at least. They couldn't even get to the foreigners' houses and they ended up just giving up and going to Edo. So it, it was clearly an, an amazingly vibrant place. And throughout the letters of Chuemon, which are my main archival source, you know, it's very clear to me how he, and I suspect most of these newcomers to this town, everyone there was a newcomer, of course, were motivated by this powerful incentive of uh, economic opportunity. And, you know, I looked at people from all walks of life within Japan. So, you know, of course, there was a significant influx of samurai in Yokohama. There were merchants pouring in from all over the place. But there were also, you know, people coming to work as servants, to work in the sex industry, to try learning new Western-style occupations. And there were also foreign populations coming really with the same motivations, economic opportunity, coming not only from Europe, but also China and elsewhere. And this Yokohama was this extraordinarily sort of a vibrant melting pot, I suppose, of, of people really who seem each individually to have been motivated by economic opportunity. And to, to sort of cut to what I really see as being the take-home message of my book, and it struck me so hard that during this decade, you know, when we think about the Meiji Restoration, we tend to think of it as sort of a, a top-down process, you know, I mean, most of the histories of the Meiji Restoration have been written from the point of view of uh, powerful reformers who instituted various more or less visionary changes. But, you know, it really struck me re researching this that much of the transformation that I observed, well, for one thing, was taking place before the Restoration itself. The Restoration, in some ways, barely disrupted that process. And for another thing, it, it was really a kind of an outcome of this, you know, very much as Adam Smith, I guess, proposes in his theory, you know, this of this enormous amount of individual enterprise combining to produce a very significant 
macroeconomic changes, both in the in the Kanto region and ultimately throughout Japan and even through the rest of the world, I think. That's a great point about the kind of individual efforts from the bottom up that made the transformations of the Meiji period possible. I'm curious, did you get a sense from reading Chueimon's diaries, particularly when his family comes in, how are they reacting to the transformations that they see going on? I mean, other than capitalizing on this new economic opportunities, are they accepting of these new transformations or, or what is their reaction? Yeah, well, I do, uh, I do I, of course, I really only have Chueimon's voice as far as, you know, his family members go. And he was very, very focused on opportunity, on commercial opportunity. So he, it's kind of a little frustrating at times that he doesn't write more about lifestyles. You know, I mean, he doesn't really tell us what he's been eating for lunch. He doesn't really tell us, you know, what he's wearing. I have only some fairly tantalizing hints about those kinds of questions. But it is clear to me that from pretty early on in his commercial life, he's experimenting with what you might call lifestyle-oriented opportunities that might have some transformative effect on his home province, which is where a lot of his business is passing through Yokohama, but ending up in his home province. So in the end, in fact, the money he makes is mostly as an exporter of products like, like silk and cotton. But he also experiments with a good deal of importing. So at various points, you find him experimenting with importing foreign alcohol, alcoholic products, foreign sugar, and he also writes at various times about encounters with foreign medicine, for example. So it's, it is clear that, uh, that, that these things are affecting him, although his style of writing doesn't really change throughout the decade. He continues to refer to the foreigners almost to the end of the decade as Ijin, you know, as a, in a very generic kind of undifferentiated way. Even though he clearly was forming individual relationships with them, it's, it's hard to get much feeling for what those relationships actually felt like on the ground for him. On the cover of my book, there's a, a photograph that I was actually lucky enough to discover in the house of Chuemon's great-grandson, which I visited in Yamanashi Prefecture. This photo has probably been sitting on the wall in their, in their living room since the 1870s. And it was, I believe the photo was made in 1872 or 1873, so after the Meiji Restoration. And the family are sitting very much in, you know, Japanese sort of traditional samurai poses, I guess. They're not a samurai family, but I guess at some point they had been given the right to wear swords, and the eldest son is wearing a sword. But there are some fascinating little details there. You know, the, the younger son, the one who, who moved to Yokohama at the age of 17, is prominently holding a pocket watch up towards the camera as though to, you know, clearly trying to trying to make some kind of statement from, from that. And I do think that, that this younger son who took over the business towards at the end of the decade, he writes, there are a few letters surviving of, of his and he is even more committed, I think, to trying to spread foreign products by, by importing them. He, he saw opportunity in that. And another intriguing sort of hint, it's actually not a diary, but a collection of letters that I have. Towards the end of the period that these letters, they kind of tail off at the beginning of the 1870s. Chuemon himself actually suffers a big financial loss and more or less goes out of business. And he's looking for what to do next. And one of the things that he tries is to open a shop doing basically Western-style tailoring, so selling clothing, a tailor's shop. 
Um, and, you know, looking at this photograph I have, there's no hint of Western-style clothing in that. But clearly he must have been familiar with it and even aware of, you know, how to process and manufacture it. So I, I work with these, these hints to show how lifestyles might have changed. Of course, there, there is broader information out there about, you know, lifestyle changes, like, for example, the introduction of the wheeled rickshaw, which was very transformational, I think, for daily life in Yokohama and then throughout Japan at the end of the 1860s. the Chuemon is importing things like wine and, and this reminded me of some of the protests to the conscription act in the 1870s there's fears that this was a, a blood tax and and there's these petitions that say things like well we all know that the government's going to come in and with this blood tax take away the blood of our young men to give to the foreigners drinking all of that red liquid mm. in Yokohama mm. they call it wine right. <laughs> so i guess chuemon was uh, one of the, one of the people making that possibly yeah i'm not exactly sure what kind of alcohol he was trying to sell but uh, there's very few hints of that kind of hostility on either end of his letters, you know, like you certainly don't hear about people objecting to any of this stuff. But there's also, you can really detect a lot of conservatism, that they try a lot of things that don't really, don't really take off uh, during the period that they're trying to sell them, at least. This resistance to the Conscription Act mm -hmm. also touches on some of your earlier work, which is mm -hmm. looking at the rural countryside. And could you talk a bit about how transformations such as those going on in Yokohama during the Meiji period are being received back in the countryside? Yeah, so it's a, a complicated question that I definitely did try and address in this study. And throughout my career, I've been very fascinated by the very rapid transformation of the Japanese countryside throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. So I would say there are a number of different ways to look at this. One of the things that first struck me, actually, was not so much transformation, but continuity. That's to say that this, this new opportunity opened up in Yokohama for Chuemon to try and sell agricultural products from Yamanashi, from Koshu. But I think that he could only really contemplate doing that because there was already a very active and well-established commercial system operating, mostly centered on the Edo market. So there was you know, already a very well-established sale of many Koshu products, including silk, cotton, but also you know, food items, particularly some of the things even that Yamanashi is still famous for today, like grapes and so on, were being sold in Edo. So I think he could definitely build on that. And in that sense, you know, I suppose you could see the opening of Yokohama as just an extension of a trend towards commercialization of the countryside that's, you know, been pretty well documented in the, uh, in the historiography. At the same time, though, the opening of Yokohama was extraordinarily disruptive for the countryside, even before the Meiji Restoration. So, you know, you have a number of factors contributing to that. You can't only look on it as negative. So there was enormous opportunity suddenly for even very small scale rural families, rural producers 
to increase their production of precious items like silk uh, cocoons and to make a cash income that they might have been greatly expanded compared to what they had been able to to make before so so in that sense this was a you know very very enabling i think for many marginal rural families throughout the kanto region and beyond but at the same time there were major disruptions clearly arising out of this uh, sudden plugging in of japan to the global economy and i you know there are a number of these i could point to and i don't want to spend too much time on them but for example i could talk about the inflation that hit japan soon after the opening of the country which was primarily i think caused by currency mismatches so that had a severe economic impact of course people also who were in more traditional industries that you know weren't able to keep up with this rapid change also found themselves suffering and i also see a lot of disruption being caused in the countryside economic disruption by the increasing political chaos that became prevalent in japan in the second half of the 1860s it put huge demands on the uh, rural populations you know to support huge military expenditures for example so all of those things i think were really quite harmful one more that perhaps it's a well known effect of globalization of the economy you know was very very visible in the case of chuemon himself and his rural community and that was the newfound vulnerability of rural producers to global market conditions so i you know i think chuemon himself doesn't talk very specifically about the reasons why his product might be getting a higher or lower price in the global market he doesn't seem very aware of global markets only of the local market in yokohama but in fact his business and really the business of the uh, rural producers who were supplying him were enormously affected by global market changes so for example the american civil war opened up a big opportunity for japanese cotton producers uh, to help replace the disruption of the cotton supply from the american south that was fantastic but also came to a very sudden end which you know had both a positive and negative effects uh, and chuemon himself you know he actually made a lot of money during the 1860s primarily selling silk products including egg cards to european buyers and that too came to a very sudden end with the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War at the beginning of the 1870s and you know really the day that the news of the French defeat reached Yokohama the market just instantly collapsed and uh, many of the merchants such as Chuemon were caught up in that collapse and lost most or all of their investments uh, and that of course also spread very quickly through the countryside so there were rural producers who had been expanding their production of silk and silkworm eggs and they found themselves having made investments that they were unable to get a return on after the collapse of prices so people who you know perhaps had thought that they were participating in a very you know local economy that they could understand suddenly discovered that they really didn't understand it and that they were being affected by events very far away it's very visible actually in the records that i that i've been using the the meiji restoration itself so my perception is that much of the transformative effects came from the opening of yokohama and japan to the global marketplace at the beginning of the 1860s and the meiji restoration as dramatic as it was and of course yokohama was in many ways a central location in the conflict 
over the course of the 1860s. It was actually, you know, a little bit of an anticlimax in terms of its economic effects on the area. Trade really continued right through the period of civil war and subsequent, you know, setting up of the new government. It's really remarkable, even as armies were on the move uh, and even destroying, you know, marching through Koshu and destroying parts of the province, nevertheless, the silk continued to, uh, to pass along the highways and business went on. So in that sense, I, it was really surprising to me how the Meiji Restoration, for example, was relatively less of an important factor than some of these distant global events that I was referring to earlier. But once the new Meiji government was established, then they did begin to start issuing new decrees and policies demanding quite significant changes in the countryside. So clearly the new taxation system, the the land registration system, and then the education and conscription systems, all of them were extremely a big deal for uh, people living in villages. And Chuemon, so so those happen at the tail end of the uh, archive that I have, but I, I can see enough to see that he and his son were were deeply concerned by these changes. There, there was actually very little that they liked about the Meiji Restoration. They were pretty loyal to the Tokugawa regime. They didn't see it as an imperial restoration really at all. Uh, they saw it as a as a takeover by by the Satsuma clan for the most part, and uh, and they deeply disliked those you know people who those southwesterners who I think they essentially sort of thought of as foreigners. And when you know Satsuma samurai turn up in the streets of Yokohama. Chuemon basically thinks that the world is coming to an end, which it doesn't. But then they do have to deal with these changes to their rural village administration, uh, many changes. And uh, Chuemon's son continues to play a role in the administration of his village as one of the senior families in the village. So they do write back and forth about how they're going to deal with these fairly radical new policies. And of course, you know, you mentioned resistance to conscription. And as as is very well known, there was resistance to all of these changes. And there was a very large amount of protest in the villages. On the whole, I think the villagers were pretty justified in protesting. I think that the conscription system, for example, in the long term, brought them no good at all. And that these were the, you know, the beginnings of radical new systems of government control over rural lives, uh, new kinds of government control, and the creation, if you like, of good Japanese citizens out of people whose uh, identities and loyalties have probably been much more local in the previous decades. You mentioned some of this animosity that Chuemon felt towards the samurai from Satsuma, for example, which you can see is some of that lingering regionalism, while at the same time he's talking about the Ijin, you know, the kind of foreigners um, mm-hmm. as the Westerners. And as you mentioned, this, this idea of turning peasants into citizens, which is something you've written about in the past, do we see that emergence of national identity and national consciousness in Chuemon's records? Yes, uh, we do. It's one of the things that I found quite intriguing. I mean, it's only hinted, you know, it's, it's hard to, to draw hard and fast conclusions. But yeah, it is, it's quite contradictory. You know, in a way, he writes about these Aegean as though they, these foreigners, as though they really are something quite apart from the world that he, that he knows. But at the same time, I, I think he clearly was learning about national identity from the foreigners. So obviously each, the foreigners themselves were pretty 
fanatic, obviously, about their national identity in this this period of very uh, radical nationalism in the mid nineteenth century. So you know these concepts of national pride, national identity, diplomatic negotiation, national aggression—all of those things—I I think he was clearly exposed to in a quite uh, a quite brutal way, actually, during the beginning of the 1860s, which was a period of great confrontation between the European powers, in particular, and and the Japanese government. And uh, so, you know, he must have been seeing that day to day in the streets. And at times it actually really threatened him personally, you know, as it appeared as though there was going to be a war at times between the Europeans and the, and the shogun. There were once or, one or two times when the whole of Yokohama just emptied out as the merchants, you know, expected war to break out any day. Chuemon actually stayed put and I kind of admire him for his courage doing that. So he was clearly seeing these national conflicts taking place. And as they did, he began writing about Japan. So in the early letters, he only really ever talks about Koshu. I mean, that clearly is where his identity lies. Koshu was directly administered by the shogunate. So being a, if you want to call it a, a you know, a subject of Koshu also meant being a subject of the shogun. So in that sense, I guess he had some identity as a subject of the shogun that may have gone beyond just local regional identity. But the idea of being Japanese never appears in the letters until the time of these conflicts break out around 1863. And then suddenly he does start talking about Nippon. And even a few, you know, once or twice, he, he actually, you know, says some quite nationalistic things himself, like, you know, Japan will never give in to these foreigners and that kind of thing. Nevertheless, sort of life goes on without him expressing strong, a strong sense of Japan has to be more unified or the kinds of things that we know in hindsight Japan was leading towards as it as it uh, was you know building up to these revolutionary changes that would create a unified nation and as i mentioned you know when the restoration came he didn't see it as a restoration at all he clearly saw it as a takeover by one clan uh, over the over the country and there are you know relatively few references to the sort of creation of Japan's national identity afterwards. But there are a couple of intriguing ones. That There was one point where he reports on a rumor that uh, the French are going to take over Japan and that the emperor is, is being moved to Paris. And, and he just reports on it in a fairly neutral way. You know, it's not like this would be the end of the world for him, apparently. You know, I think that at a certain point, he sort of reflects which what might have been quite a prevailing view in the Kanto area, which is that, you know, the great powers, whether it's the Shogun, Satsuma, whoever it be, are fighting it out, but it's basically not our business. You know, our business is to get on with our lives. Having said that, he also seems to have really supported the idea of breaking off Eastern Japan from the West right after the, the outbreak of the Civil War. He's the, he mentions once or twice the possibility that a nation, a new nation might be created in the east of Japan, in which the shogunate and plus some branch of the imperial family would, uh, you know, would continue to, to govern in the old way. So he clearly didn't like the change. But then the emperor arrives in Edo, and Chuemon doesn't really talk about these national affairs that much in these rather scattered few final letters that I have in this archive. Towards the end of the collection, he does, for example, write about the opening of the Yokohama railway station. And in that letter, the emperor shows up in Yokohama. And this is, what, uh, three or four years after the restoration. And at that point, Chuemon has clearly mastered 
the kind of language and identity of being an imperial subject. So he knows how to write about the emperor with the correct honorifics, uh, and he knows how to be you know, sufficiently in awe of this imperial presence that is gracing uh, the opening of this, uh, of this railway. And, uh, you know, he, he actually attends the, the opening ceremony uh, with the emperor. So he's, he's very excited about all that. So by the end of this period, he has bought into some of these changes. So it's, I guess, a sort of a contradictory picture of increasing national identity, but at the same time, resistance to changes, even if those changes may have tended towards the development of, the, of a national Japanese administrative system, and finally acceptance of the new system. Well, if the emperor moves to Paris, then at least Chuemon can start importing French wine. Yeah, that's quite... <laughs> yeah. You didn't mention the economic implications, but yeah, they must have been quite interesting, I would think, yeah. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.